the point of energy system training for me is just to improve the integrated capacity of the pulmonary system to uptake oxygen, cardiovascular system to transport it, and muscular system to utilize it. As long as we're continually finding which of those is the rate limiting factor, improving it, bringing the other ones up in tandem, that person is generally going to be better conditioned. Welcome back, gang, to another week uh, here with Drew and Alex on the Mops and Most podcast. You will be hearing this on Sunday, uh, but we are recording it on Friday. And as of this point in time, neither Alex nor myself has yet seen the final episode of this season's British Bake Off. So by the time you watched or by the time you hear this, you will have known the finalists or sorry, you will have known who won. I'm Team Maddie on this one. I don't know where you sit. Hey. I think I have to go Team Maddie as well. Uh, I was Maddie. I was conflicted when we got to Final Four. I was a little conflicted. <laughs> Tasha was great. I did like Tasha. The last four have been, I think, my favorite four in a long time. Josh is kind of forgettable. He is forgettable. I won't lie. Big Dan fan though. Dan and Patisserie Week was unmatched, but I think I liked uh, him the best at the beginning. Like early season, he was pretty solid. Well, he he's had great attitude throughout. He has. Which, by the way, if you are listening to this and you don't watch British Bake Off, I don't really have any words. I will admit, I never, I never got into British Bake Off until this season. This is a recent thing. This is me. your first season. This is my first season. Oh my god! Yeah. So you've only ever known Prue. Yeah. Wow. Although, can we even can we even talk about like Prue's legend to be on the show now? Is that <laughs> podcast appropriate, or do what should was we it just that... tell people to go look that up? So she came clean this about is a, this. Is a family friendly podcast. I'm not sure we can even go into Prue's. Well, so is British Bake affairs. Off, but Prue is a savage, <laughs> apparently. What happened again? Hold on, I'm gonna. I I don't even remember it careful like correctly enough to riff it right now. I'd have to go look it up. But something about having an affair with something. Her, yeah, with her mom's friend or something. Her mom's friend. Yeah. Yeah. Which you would never guess, but. Yeah, I was I was British Bake Off when Mary Berry was. I mean, this was Paul Hollywood's been there forever, but Mary Berry and Prue. Mary Berry, I've talked about this before. This I is going way this. off track of fitness, but Mary Berry. Every time I hear that name, makes me think of my favorite North Carolinian. Hell yeah, North Carolina, the uh, elevator. Sherry lady. Berry, the elevator lady. Sherry yeah. Berry, the elevator lady. There for, you go. For all of our listeners here, people may uh, not know this, and she's no longer the elevator. She's no longer lady, the elevator lady. But until like a couple years ago, any elevator in North Carolina that you walk into mm-hmm. had to have Sherry Berry's signature on it, proving that it she was, was the inspector. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not to be confused with Mary Berry, the original co-host or sorry, co-judge of British Bake Off with Paul Hollywood. Yeah, that's way way back. First season, huh? Wow, man. Welcome, welcome to. Uh, yeah, I got some world. kitchen up to do. Um, to try and get this like slightly back on the rails before we get into the real episode, I do have an important correction to make from a previous episode. Oh yeah, I was episode. supposed to remind you about the science correction. Yeah, I I only had one person correct me. So, I mean, I need the nerds out there in Leg Tuck Nation <laughs> to be on it more when I make science errors to correct me, but I do appreciate that I was corrected. I said in a previous episode that the equation for work is force times distance divided by time. And that is not correct. Work is just force times distance. When you divide by time, you have power. So that kind of, it doesn't necessarily like mess up the whole thesis of what we were talking about, about like 
the episode still counts. quantifying exercise and stuff like that. But the the point remains that like work is treated like it's a fuzzy term, like it's just some vague concept when work is in fact a physics concept. There you go. I just screwed up the actual equation for it, so I apologize. Okay, well, let's get to the matter at hand. So this week, uh, we are having a conversation with Evan Pycon. And if you have been a listener of this show for, well, I guess since the beginning, Evan was, geez, maybe one of the first three guests we had on, maybe one of the first five. It was very early, yeah. Yeah, it was very early on. Uh, he and I have been acquaintances in, acquaintances for quite some time. Uh, friend of the show, brilliant mind. And one of the reasons we wanted to bring him back on was because we wanted to not necessarily pick. Well, maybe maybe we did want to pick apart energy system training. What are, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, you've always had a, a reaction to mentions of like the word anaerobic or the phrase energy systems where you want to just go off about the flaws in that whole framework. So I think, yes, I think that you, at least probably both of us had a desire to pick apart energy systems. Well, so Evan's thing, and if you followed him, he's been talking about this forever, but the way that I would say that the way that your, your run of the mill average strength coach thinks about energy system training is actually flawed physiologically. It does not jive with current science. And although people like Evan contemporary physiologists, contemporary uh, biochemists, whomever, they have been preaching a more modern approach. For example, looking at lactate as a fuel source, lactate shuttle model, all of these things. The strength and conditioning industry still seems to be convinced that we go through these like three different energy systems and it all happens on these very nice and clean timescales and you can graph it out and yada, yada, yada. I want to say I was so proud of myself when I figured out like a nice diagram of the <laughs> old school energy systems model with like an arrow pointing to the left with intensity and an arrow pointing to the right yeah, with wrong. time and like the fuel sources and stuff. And you're all wrong. I, I felt so smart when I did. It. I drew it on a whiteboard countless times for people. <sighs> Sorry, guys. It's like with work, you had the wrong equation with energy systems. You had the wrong model, but uh, we wanted to bring Evan on. One, to sort of talk about the more contemporary model, which again is something he's been doing for a long time, but then two, distill that down into something very, very practical, because I think there are certain components of this that may not necessarily change the way that you do training, um, but there are certainly some pieces of this that might at least challenge the way that you think about energy system training specifically, but maybe, maybe human performance more broadly. So a pleasure to have him back on. Before we launch into the actual episode, should I explain who Evan is? Yeah, let's do that. did not catch the earlier episode. I'll do a I'll mini version of his bio. Mm -hmm. If you want the full thing, you can go back to the previous episode. It's the one titled Paradigms in Strength and Conditioning. But Evan Pycon is a physiologist and bioscientist who focuses on human performance, including consulting for elite athletes and military special operations. He has a particular focus, which you will hear plenty about in this episode, on understanding and monitoring how the body utilizes oxygen during exercise. He's also the co-founder and lead physiologist at Knox, where he and his team developed the first and only wearable device to non-invasively measure muscle oxygenation and nitric oxide release from red blood cells in real time. So that's, that's what he's doing on the tech side. 
And you will, you won't necessarily hear him talk about that specifically. We didn't even like go in that direction at all, but you will hear him talking a lot about why we might need the information revealed by monitoring like that, where you can get a better idea of real time muscle oxygenation. Exactly. So one of those episodes you may want a pencil and paper, uh, definitely having worth a follow and, uh, enjoy. Hey guys, before we kick this episode off, just wanted to give a quick plug to the two options that we have for folks interested in training with us. We have the team-based long and strong program. And then if you are interested in a more engaging, intensive, uh, more tailored option, we offer one-on-one coaching as well. And you can find both of those on the training tab of our website, mopsandmoes.com. And if it's the team training you're interested, click that link and you will find a one-week free trial. So again, if any of the things that we talk about on this podcast are interesting to you as far as training goes, head to the website like Alex just mentioned, select that training tab and follow the instructions from there. Enjoy the episode. Let's start from the top and I'll caveat, you can leave this in the episode if you want to, Alex, but like we have not scripted this really whatsoever. So we're just going to kind of go with the flow. And hopefully cover all the bases. And if people have questions, we'll do another one of these. But let's start with the, with a very simple background of the classic model. The classic model of what, Drew? Of energy system development. Forgive me. Sorry. Aerobic, anaerobic, all of those things. But I want to know, because I've heard you talk about this before, like what is the actual, let's explain the model, but as well, like what is the actual, how did they get to that model? What science were they doing that led them, them being scientists, to arrive at what we know today as this three-bucket energy system model? Yeah, so that's something I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how that classic model was arrived at in the first place, because it's not entirely clear when you look at these models and it has a y-axis graph of like percent energy contribution and the x-axis is time and it shows the atp stores uh, being used from zero to two seconds and phosphagen from two seconds to 10 seconds it's not entirely clear where any of that came from i'm not fully convinced there is really any science to begin with some of the things that we could point to is when you see for example um like the phosphagen system the two to ten seconds the techniques that they were using to measure phosphocreatine consumption in tissue, let's say, you know, 50 years ago, it's called like a freeze clamp technique. So you would know roughly how much uh, phosphocreatine there is in some kind of animal tissue generally removed from the body. And then you would uh, stimulate it and you would see how much phosphocreatine is used. And then, you know, you would know how many contractions were done, how long those contractions took, and you would see this is the starting point, this is the finishing point. You could make some rough assumptions about phosphocreatine consumption. The problem is, is that when a tissue is removed from a body, it doesn't really act <laughs> like how it does when it's in a body. Surprise, surprise. So this is where with more modern techniques for measuring things like phosphocreatine, where you really start to see like the classic model kind of falling apart and a new model coming into light. So for example, there's a newer technique called uh, phosphorus nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Essentially, what it allows you to do is measure phosphocreatine consumption and restoration in extremely fast timescales. So one of the things that I always think about is uh, in that 
that previous model, when you have a tissue, you know the PCR stores, you stimulate it, and you see how much is used. Let's say they measured 50 units of phosphocreatine are used, just completely making up arbitrary numbers here. Where with this uh, newer technique that has a much faster resolution, you could actually see phosphocreatine being used and restored within millisecond timescales. So a lot of where we're looking at these old models and saying these might not be that accurate, and then we're starting to come up with these newer models, it really just comes down to better measurement techniques. I don't think people appreciate how few things you could measure in the human body in real time in the 1960s and 1970s when a lot of these textbooks were originally created. And then even in the past 5, 10, 15 years, how quickly these measurement techniques have advanced without any of those findings trickling back down into the exercise science literature. It's almost been like completely siloed off from some of these newer measurement techniques. This has me thinking, like, I don't, I don't remember exactly like when it was done where they figured out that like electricity is a part of controlling muscle contractions and things like that. But the old video is like pouring salt on frog legs. Mm -hmm. We we basically transitioned from like the level of science where we were like making frog legs twitch on a plate and seeing what happened to like actually imaging and like monitoring things and like living animals and then living humans. Yeah, Strength and conditioning hasn't advanced beyond frog legs though. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, even just like to your point, Alex, like what what you could easily measure, what you could easily do. I feel like a lot of the industry kind of stopped at like two things correlating. And then just assuming causation without ever actually probing any further and seeing like, huh, is there any chance that those things correlate, but they're not actually causative? Like the classic example would be like lactate production. Oh, people fatigue and they go to volitional failure and there's a ton of lactate in the tissue. Lactate has to cause fatigue. Not really a great hypothesis. Like a lot of things are going to be present when you push someone to volitional failure it doesn't necessarily mean that they are causative of that failure. So I feel like that's kind of like a fallacy that exercise science has had in general. Even when you look at studies, there's like no respect for trying to parse out like dose response relationships. It's almost like doing a pharmacology trial and saying, we're just going to give everyone this drug and see who responds. And you're not controlling for like, how large are these people? What are differences in their metabolism and excretion of drugs? We're just going to give them all the same dosage and see if it does anything. That doesn't really make sense. That reminds me of a direction I want to make sure this conversation goes, or at least like a topic we come back to as we talk about this, which is like whether something's true and whether something is helpful are two different things, right? And they're the like lactic acid conversation is a pretty good example of like somebody mentions lactic acid and like the coach gets to talk about all the stuff they read about how like <laughs> blood acidosis and lactate production are two different things. And lactate is actually an energy substrate. It's more complicated than that. It's not lactic acid. Your gym teacher was wrong. You get to sound real smart, but at the end of that, you don't really have like a takeaway statement of like, mm -hmm. why does that matter to the athlete or the trainee or the coach or anything like that? Like for this energy system one, I want to try and come to a point in this conversation where we're talking about why it does matter and why like we don't necessarily have to drill all the way down to like a super scientific version of an energy system model but like lay out the things we've learned that change the picture a little bit and then talk about practically why does that matter for a practitioner who's designing training yes yeah, so i think the real important takeaway if we would just want to go macro level is thinking about what are limiting systems for people's performance so 
I'm with you, like getting into the nuances and minutia of like, this is the rate that oxygen is consumed in the tissue. Like this is the role of nitric oxide dissociating from hemoglobin and improving blood flow. For most people, none of these things are really going to matter. What matters is how could we identify what's actually limiting this person's performance? And in a practical sense, what do we even do about that? So I think when we have this very classic view of energy system training, it really just constrains our creativity of how we would approach training. So for example, if we're assuming that a uh, 200 meter sprinter is competing in a uh, race that tests their alactic anaerobic capacity, well, are we ever going to come to the conclusion that they might be limited by their cardiovascular system's ability to transport oxygen? Probably not. Are we going to uh, consider that they might be limited by their muscular system's maximal rate that it could utilize oxygen? Probably not. Because we're saying that these events are determined by your alactic anaerobic capacity, kind of removes oxygen from that process entirely. So I think the real value and the practical takeaway is with the contemporary model of energy systems that I think we talked about quite a bit last time I was on, what we could kind of say is it almost creates a unified theory of bioenergetics. Every athlete is either going to be limited by their ability to uptake oxygen into their body, supply it to the muscles, or utilize it in the muscles. And the real difference between a 100-meter sprinter and a marathon runner isn't that one of those is an alactic anaerobic athlete and one of those is an aerobic athlete. The only thing that really differs is the rate that they're utilizing oxygen in their muscles. It's kind of like comparing a F1 car to like a long-haul trucker. They're using the same fuel. They're just consuming it at very different rates. So if we could think in those terms, we could take the athlete, what their specific event is, and then identify what is their limitation for being able to uptake supply or utilize oxygen. And once we know that, it really becomes like a pretty modular plug and play formula for figuring out how we need to train that person. So I want to set a foundation for the conversation here and then give you a chance to go back to what you refer to as the contemporary model, because our audience is diverse, right? And some of them are coaches who have all this stuff and some of them are not. So I want to, I want to lay this out the exact same way I used to do it on the whiteboard when I was teaching master fitness trainer to NCOs in the army. And this is going to be pretty dramatically oversimplified, but I also like it served me pretty well on the CSCS exam. So it's pretty much the same thing as coaches understand it to be. So we'll Which see. Is its own issue. Yeah. You have to learn the wrong thing to get an A. And that's actually, that's a big part of like how this podcast came to be is like drew was one of the first people who was like willing to tell me that like all the stuff i read in the textbook was outdated and marginally useless and stuff like that um and this was one of the first examples of it and people loved it when i put the stuff on the whiteboard and i got to sound smart and all that stuff and now i wonder whether i should have ever put it up there in the first place but who knows i'm gonna lay it out and then i'll give you a chance to like explain all the things that are wrong with it i think um <laughs> and i i will for people who are listening throw a link in the show notes so you can see a diagram of this um, and if you are planning to take the CSCS exam, pretend it's true, forget everything else. Um, which again is its own issue. <laughs> yep. And it's, it's three buckets, but one of the buckets is split in half. So it's kind of four different things. Um, so I'll go from like left to right from like shortest time duration to longest time duration. So we, we start with, and Evan was talking about this a second ago, but phosphocreatine, the phosphogen energy system, that's your like two to 10 second thing as he described it or zero to 10 seconds, depending on who you're talking about. 
because it's ATP for that first little bit that's already in the muscle. Well, hold on, let me, let me pause you because what you're what you're explaining is this the the fuel that's being utilized to do Correct. the thing. So think yes. about this for people like think about this in terms of like three, two, one, go. You're running in a straight line, and the fuel systems you're using are what you're about to go through. So yeah. carry on, and you'll you'll hear it referred to as phosphogen, or you'll hear it referred to as ATP PC, which is stored ATP and phosphocreatine. So that's your highest intensity, shortest duration, and it is anaerobic. Which so, means no oxygen. Correct. If you don't know Latin. Our our second bucket is the one that's kind of split in half. So this is glycolysis. We're relying on carbs as the source of the fuel, and it's split into anaerobic glycolysis and aerobic glycolysis. So that anaerobic glycolysis half of the bucket, loosely speaking, if you're going by the textbook and stuff, we're talking about like 30 seconds-ish out to two minutes-ish. Um, still using carbohydrates, but not with oxygen. And then the aerobic glycolysis side of the bucket, it's slower, but you can metabolize carbs aerobically. Now we're talking about like nine minute to three hour efforts, getting lower intensity and higher duration. And then our third bucket, beta oxidation, metabolizing fat, definitely aerobic. And we're talking about super long duration stuff or like predominant energy production while you're at rest, things like that. Would, would you say that is a decent articulation of what like traditional mm. energy system model would be? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, depending on the textbook that you look at the year it's from like the specific time, those, range those time domains are fuzzy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like plus or minus 10 to 20 seconds in any direction. Well, the names um, change like, too. Yeah, the names do change. So that's a weird thing. Sometimes you see like ATP PCR lumped into one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so even the or nomenclature is a little A lactic, lactic, lactic power, lactic mm-hmm. endurance, aerobic power, aerobic endurance. Like it's and they all vaguely refer to the same thing, but yeah, mm-hmm. you'll hear different terms depending on which coaching certification you're going through. And well, and I think I mean, I know we're kind of riffing here, but like I think one of the things that and Evan, maybe you can spin off on this with the newer model down the road. But like one of the questions I had coming into this is like, why now that we know, hopefully some of us at least know that this model is wrong, like it's scientifically wrong. Why does it stay so entrenched? Why? I mean, you know, Alex talking about studying for the CSCS, like why are why, the NSCA? No, I hope would know that this is wrong, but we still teach it. We still learn it. It's still in the textbooks. We still talk about it. Very intelligent people in academia on social media still use these terms and they, they refer to these charts and these lines and they will tell athletes like, Oh, this is anaerobic, this, that, or the other. And you'll, you'll say like, Hey, uh, Hey man, um, that's wrong. Oh no, I know. But like, it's, you know, it makes sense for today. Yada, yada, yada. And I think one of the reasons why it stays so entrenched from my perspective is like you can take that model, regardless of the time domain, plus or minus 20 seconds, and you can create building blocks that coaches and athletes can use to then justify some random training prescription. Like today we're doing a lactic power. What does that mean, coach? Well, it means we're going to do sprints that are 30 seconds long. And because they're 30 seconds long, you're using lactate because that's what I learned 10 years ago. And I haven't bothered to update my my knowledge. So I'm, I'm like on a little bit of a pedestal here, but I guess the question within all of that to you, Evan is like, we know that model's wrong. Why are we still using it? Well, I I don't want to interrupt too hard here, but should we take a step back 
and explain what is wrong about it. Sure. And I think the starting point for that is looking at actual oxygen consumption in different time domains. Yeah. So I think there's a few things that we could pick holes in. So for example, we started, we said, you know, time zones plus or minus 10 seconds, but generally the idea is from roughly zero to two seconds, we're primarily using ATP stores, two to 10 seconds, phosphagen or PCR, whatever you want to call that. 10 seconds to two-ish minutes is the glycolytic system. And then from two minutes to infinity is the oxidative system. So there's a lot of holes we could pick in this, but I'll point to some of the more like concrete pieces of evidence, uh, and particularly ones from very high profile labs, because as a lot of people know, you could sometimes find studies saying anything you want if you use the great Google search terms. <laughs> One of the papers that I always go back to is a paper called The Glycogen Shunt and Exercising Muscle, a Role for Glycogen and Muscle Energetics in Fatigue. And this is from uh, Shulman and Rothman out of Yale. So like very high profile lab published in a very good journal. So one of the things that they published in a paper that when I first saw this, I was like, this makes no sense whatsoever. So they were talking about individuals in high intensity exercise conditions where after like multiple minutes, there's this enzyme called glycogen phosphorylase present and it's in its active form. Now, what the enzyme glycogen phosphorylase does is it breaks down muscle glycogen. So we've all heard, you know, you replenish carbohydrates, you store glucose in the muscle in the form of glycogen. But what made no sense whatsoever in this paper is glycogen phosphorylase was in its active form while muscle glycogen concentrations were completely stable. So you're like, what is this enzyme doing? How is it turned on if glycogen concentrations in the muscle aren't doing anything? Well, the only way that that makes sense is if people are exercising and continually breaking down glycogen and replenishing glycogen within millisecond timescales. Now, if we're looking at that classic model of energy systems and we're saying the glycolytic system's pretty much tapped out after two minutes, it doesn't really make sense that glycogen phosphorylase would be active, you know, 10, 20, 60 minutes into exercise. So that's not definitive nail in the coffin proof by any means, but that's a little questionable. Now, there's a second paper. This one is called um, Metabolic Fluctuations During a Muscle Contraction Cycle. So this one was pretty meaningful because what the investigators found with newer measurement techniques is that phosphocreatine consumption is about 40 or 50 times greater than anyone previously believed. Now, what's important about this paper is it essentially showed that not only is phosphocreatine consumption so much higher than anyone believed, it's actually a continuous process. So after two seconds, you don't stop using phosphocreatine for muscle contraction. That continues. Now, this study, some people point to it and say, it doesn't really prove it's happening in the human body during exercise and lifetime, lots of limitations. So this is where the third key paper that I point to is uh, Kevin McNully out of uh, UGA's lab. It's called Simultaneous In Vivo Measurements of HBO2 Saturation and Phosphocreatine Kinetics after exercise in normal humans, what this lab did is they measured phosphocreatine and oxygen in muscles in real time during exercise. And this is the one where if you're familiar with that classic model, none of it makes sense. They have people start exercising and you see immediately oxygen levels in the muscle tissue start declining and you see phosphocreatine levels in the muscle declining. But importantly, they're declining in perfect tandem with one another. 
And then they have people stop exercising. Exercise trials last multiple minutes and phosphocreatine and oxygen recover together. Well, if people were supposed to stop using phosphocreatine as a primary fuel source after two seconds, they weren't supposed to start using oxygen as a primary fuel source until about two minutes in. None of the data in this study makes sense. So this goes to the point, there's a lot of papers pulling on these threads, yet in strength and conditioning and exercise science, we often don't hear about these things. So to Drew's earlier question, the reality is, is it often doesn't really matter if you have the right paradigm, because when we're talking about human performance, genetic variability in people's responsiveness to training is so great that you could have someone that is effectively doing everything wrong if we're talking in terms of generally accepted best practices, and they're still going to be so much better than most other individuals who might be doing everything right. So when you're working in a system where the wrong idea or the wrong paradigm could get you the better result, there's no clear pressure to optimize everything. And the reality is, even when you are thinking in the, let's say, truer terms, it often doesn't change the training enough to be meaningful for the elite athlete. And I think that's the real thing. All of these things that we're talking about really don't impact the elite athlete enough to move world records or get people on podiums. It's really more important for the average athlete. They're the ones that are going to get a faster response or even that like 80th percentile athlete. But that doesn't really influence what culture thinks about because the kind of average Joe athlete person, the 80th percentile that they start progressing much faster when they change their training. No one's listening to that message. You're not seeing that on social media. They don't have hundreds of thousands of followers. So again, it's like there's just not really a system that rewards uh, thinking about these things or changing your training. And I think ultimately what that results in is nobody really knows that the ideas that we talk about are outdated because it doesn't matter for the top athletes in really any sport. Do you think that that is something that if if it does not already could potentially hold the field of strength and conditioning back? And and what I mean by that is it's, it, it, at least where I've sat for most of my career in these kind of embedded human performance teams alongside doctors and physical therapists and dietitians and folks from these different disciplines, especially medical disciplines where the body of knowledge seems to be moving forward. Like evidence gets presented, we change our ideas. Obviously we know now that it's healthy to wash your hands. Whereas before we didn't really think that germs were a thing. And like you, you see all of these things move forward, but in this industry, for some reason, it seems like the body of knowledge, the, the, you know, 90% of it or whatever has stayed fixed from like the fifties and sixties. And and sure there's, there's folks out there doing great work in labs and they're producing evidence like in this example that shows that not only is it different, but like, it's actually wrong. Like the model you're using to explain the way the human body utilizes energy is wrong and we can show it's wrong. And here's these papers that show that it's wrong. And while that may not make a difference to the person at the YMCA doing back squats or running on the treadmill, I'm wondering if it holds the industry back from being recognized as a legitimate piece of the 
puzzle when we think about the health of human beings, because we'll see papers that show that exercise is healthy. Okay, great. But at the end of the day, people are still going after the, you know, I need to take some pill from some pharmacy or I need to go see some doctor. And I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of rambling here, but I'm wondering if the inability of the industry to recognize where it's wrong and to use science to move it forward actually holds it back from being recognized as legitimate next to some other big fields, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I think that makes total sense. And I think, interestingly, it's not all of exercise science. So in like our current era of uh, like tech bio and big data, what you're seeing is there's actually a lot of really amazing work going on looking at the body's response to exercise, but it's not in the realm of human performance. Mm -hmm. So for example, now that, um, you know, generally it's pretty well understood that exercise really is the best medicine for a lot of conditions. There's a lot of pharmaceutical companies interested in understanding the body's response to exercise to try and model drugs off of that or understanding how uh, individualized exercise could help people with X, Y, or Z condition. So one of the things that a lot of people are kind of blown away to hear this is we're actually at the point now where you could have someone and you take um, biological measurements from them. You look at their micro RNA expression, essentially how proteins are being regulated before exercise, have them do an exercise trial, measure it after exercise, and actually see how their gene regulation is changing in response to exercise. So you could start to really understand what type of dose, uh, intensity, and stimulus is actually creating the specific metabolic changes that we want to go after, that's already possible. I'm not aware of anyone in the world of human performance doing that. So that's entirely in the realm of like, you know, exercise therapeutics. Mm -hmm. So I think if things don't start changing quicker in, you know, our kind of self-contained strength and conditioning world, the experts in exercise science and body's responses to exercise are not going to be strength and conditioning professionals. They're going to be molecular exercise physiologists, people working in biotech, bioinformaticians, um, and their understanding of how to create dose-dependent exercise programs is going to be far greater than anything anyone in strength and conditioning is doing. So I think if we really want our field to move forward, you know, there needs to be a collaboration between those parties to see that those same types of tools being applied in other situations could have a trickle down effect to what we're doing to see could you create a study where we actually look at individual responses for certain variables that will improve endurance strength you name it so we don't need to be playing these games of like everyone has their own flavor of training theory and these proprietary systems it could be as simple as understanding like at the end of the day what does this volume of back squats at this intensity do for drew mm -hmm. You know, if we know yeah. that it becomes a little bit more straightforward, training could be a little bit more modular where you really know what different types of protocols are doing. Well, and the reason I asked that question is because I've, I've run into this, I mean, cause you and I have been talking about this for years and years, but you always run into the same argument or counter argument, which is okay, great, cool. Like, <laughs> you know, the old energy system model doesn't work, whatever, but like, I still prescribe this exercise or series of exercise or training programs, I still prescribe that to athletes and they still get better. And so I, I guess what I'm trying to tease out there and what you just kind of elucidated perfectly was 
there is a, a sort of quote unquote danger to just being ignorant to contemporary science with this type of thing. So while it may not change, you know, we joke about this, like it may not change what you do on Monday right now, there's benefit in, in understanding what we have learned about physiology since the 1950s, 60s, 70s, which kind of leads to the next maybe chapter of this discussion, which is, unless Alex, you have anything that you want to touch on, but what is this more contemporary model that you advocate for? Let's start to explain that one. Yeah, so ultimately, it's it's about thinking about energy systems in light of all of the modern scientific evidence, but really goes beyond that of just generally understanding how the body regulates oxygen uptake, transport, and utilization. Because for most people, you don't really need to know what's happening on the cellular level. It's great to know that if you're a coach and you like the science, but for most people, it's about the practical aspects. So I think to your point, like, yeah, it might not change what you do on Monday, but understanding human, what would be called cardiovascular control systems, it's important so far as uh, it tells you what to do when someone stops progressing. So when things are going well, you don't need to know anything. And that's kind of the gift of working with elite athletes is a lot of times they kind of get no better no matter what they're doing. It's kind of like the elite and the beginner both kind of fall on opposite ends of the spectrum that end up meeting somewhere in the middle. But for the average person, if you don't really know a what is limiting performance in like a true physiologic sense, and you don't actually know what your training protocols are doing to the body, when things stop working, how are you going to know what to do next? Or how are you going to form an educated like guess of what you can do next that would be logical? I think that's really like where the rubber meets the road. And I think to me, that's really the importance of this. Mm -hmm. So I want to give you a chance to kind of lay something out there because we explained what the quote unquote three buckets of the traditional energy system model were. You breezed through, I guess, what would be the equivalent three buckets of your model, which are uptake, transportation, and utilization of oxygen. Can you like dig a little deeper on laying out what those three are? Yeah, yeah, totally. So I'll, I'll start with the micro and then we could kind of zoom out in the macro. So in what we would call like a contemporary model of bioenergetics or energy systems, all of the same systems that we talked about earlier are still there. So we still have the ATP stores. We still have the phosphagen system, glycolytic system, oxidative system. Really none of that nomenclature is changing. Really the way that I would think about it is all of those processes that we talked about on the time scales that we talked about, all of that is happening within milliseconds. So all of the energy systems are active at all times. They're all overlapping, but the relative contributions are changing on millisecond timescales. So when you contract a muscle, you do utilize ATP, and that's going to become depleted. Now, generally, when people are doing sports, you're not just like contracting your muscle really hard, and then you just kind of hang out. We're talking about work capacity. So if you want to sustain muscle contractions, you need a rapid non-oxidative energy source to replenish ATP. Now, this is where the phosphocreatine system comes in. So generally, we would say, you know, you deplete ITP and then the phosphocreatine system restores it. But again, we're not talking about two seconds of activity. We're talking about seconds, minutes, hours of all of these energy systems being active. So when you deplete ATP within about 10 to 15 milliseconds, uh, phosphocreatine is going to restore that ATP. Now, the problem is you just used phosphocreatine to restore ATP. And something needs to restore that phosphocreatine. So 
this is where we run into a big issue because we say, okay, ATP is broken down, phosphocreatine restores, and now phosphocreatine needs to be restored. Well, phosphocreatine, remember, is restored by the glycolytic system. Well, there's a big problem. You actually don't have that much glucose in the body at any given point of time. So if you were actually breaking down glucose to restore phosphocreatine, you'd be kind of screwed after like, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 seconds. So this is where we look back at that uh, biochemical literature that we talked about earlier with Shulman and Rothman and the glycogen shunt model. So again, phosphocreatine is broken down, but we see glycogen phosphorylase in its active form when glycogen concentrations are stable. So this means we're constantly breaking down glycogen to restore phosphocreatine, which restores ATP. Now it's like we keep zooming out, well, what restores glycogen? Well, that's from the oxidation of lactate. So this is where people are like, well, I thought lactate's a fatigue byproduct. No, lactate is actually a fuel source for oxidation. The only reason that you have lactate, you know, built in excess in tissues, and it's just a really inefficient process. So we have all these things happening simultaneously where we do have oxygen also in this process. Oxygen is restoring ATP. And all of these systems are working to restore ATP at any given point in time. So I think of it like ATP is a bucket in the middle. From the left side, we have oxygen restoring ATP. From the right side, we have PCR and then glycogen and then lactate. And all of these things are just occurring constantly, literally within 10 to 15 milliseconds. These processes are all going on. So this is where, from a practical perspective, when are you ever doing anaerobic work? Never. When are you ever doing a lactic work? Never. So you kind of get to the point where you're like, everything is lactic and aerobic, which from a traditional nomenclature standpoint, you're like, well, what the hell do we do with that? Because I'm used to like a lactic power and lactic endurance and aerobic power and aerobic endurance. Well, if everything's aerobic and lactic, now that model kind of becomes a little bit defunct. So this is where now we're starting to think in terms of big picture systems in the body. For any given activity that you're doing, you're going to have to get oxygen into the body to the working muscles and the working muscles, you're going to have to utilize it. One of those three processes is going to be lagging in respect to the other. So if you're doing like a maximal effort sprint, you're probably going to be more limited by your muscles, maximal ability to utilize the oxygen in the muscle, or maybe if you're running a mile all out, you might be shifting more of that stress to your respiratory system. The practical aspect is when you're doing these activities, we could figure out which of these systems is limiting your performance and we could target that with training. So instead of saying today we're doing a lactic power training, I would say today we are going to do training that's going to stress your fill in the blank system. And that's where when you understand the physiology that we're dealing with, it becomes a little bit more self-evident what types of protocols are actually going to be most beneficial for a given individual. So let's say you have someone that's limited by their respiratory system's ability to uptake oxygen. You could do something like a hard start interval, which induces really high uh, peak VO2 levels during exercise and it allows you to spend a lot of time in your maximal oxygen consumption. Well, when hard start intervals stop working, you would find another protocol that's known to stress the respiratory system. You're not going to be like, should we do Tabatas or should we do like 40 minute tempo runs? No, we know the answer because we know what the limiting factor is. So that's where, you know, these things become a little bit more, I guess, practical and big picture. In our traditional model, we can chart them across 
like decreasing intensity and increasing duration of activity. Hmm. And you, you, you mentioned a couple examples there. You mentioned like maximal effort sprinting is likely limited by uh, utilization at the muscle. Mm -hmm. Is there, can you lay out either like from left to right on an intensity scale or a duration scale, or if that's not the case, some example activities mm -hmm. where it's most likely that each of those three is going to be the limiter? Yes, I think a good way to think about it would be like, yeah, if we're going like real maximal effort sprinting, assuming someone is like pretty well coordinated, they are probably going to be limited by their ability to utilize oxygen in the muscle. And we're talking about like elite sprinters that might not be true anymore because they've gotten to a point where they can utilize oxygen so rapidly, they may actually just completely deplete their muscle's oxygen supply. If we back down the intensity a little bit, let's say we're at like a one mile, two mile run all out, that's probably going to be stressing the respiratory system a little bit more. And as we lower the intensity and stretch out the duration, we're probably going to be taxing the cardiovascular system's ability to transport oxygen. Now, these are kind of like rough general heuristics. What we always need to consider is uh, it's going to be a combination of that individual's physiology, what the specific event demands are what the movements are is going to influence these things. So for example, let's say we take like a really high level cyclist. So they have a very well developed cardiovascular system and we put them on a ski erg and we tell them, you know, go do a half hour, like max distance on the ski erg. Well, they might actually still be limited by their muscles ability to utilize oxygen, even though that's not a very high effort piece because they don't have a lot of mitochondrial density in their triceps and lats, because they don't train those muscles to a meaningful degree. So there's always these kinds of edge cases where those time domains might break down a little bit. I, I mean, I think <clears throat> what maybe an effective way of communicating this to people who have no clue what's going on right now is that for the contemporary, sorry, for the, for the, outdated model the classical model to make any kind of sense you sort of have to either think that you understand physiology or just be okay with hearing physiological cellular type terms atp you know phosphocreatine these types of things this this more contemporary model and what we know now to be correct based on the research that you already mentioned effectively oxygen is like your gasoline like that's really all you need to know and understand is like it's all oxygen so you're not training to the physiology anymore. You're just training to which part of your system is keeping that oxygen, that fuel from getting to the muscle. Like you just mentioned with the skier example, if it's a movement you're not really good at, then the muscle itself is not going to be that great at utilizing that oxygen. So, okay, cool. There's a, there's something we can train to. Similarly, the respiratory system might not be all that great at receiving oxygen from the atmosphere i.e. breathing and like contributing that to the muscle. So, okay, cool. There's something that we can train. And then if it's, if it's the actual uptake delivery, whatever, these different limiters that you talked about, that then becomes the training mechanism as opposed to let's create some arbitrary interval structures based on what we think we know about physiology. So I think an obvious follow-on question people are going to have here is that we've, we've, I think you've done a pretty good job laying out these three limiters. So I, I think people will hear that and they'll say, well, which, which one is me? 
Is that like a fair question? And then if it is a fair question, what would you, what would your answer be to that? Yeah. So I'd say, which is me in an activity that I care about improving my performance in? Well, I think that's an important point you just made though, because people, oh, I'm, I self, I don't want to say I self-identify. I identify as like respiratory limited. Like, so keep, keep going. Cause I think you're onto it. Yeah. So part of it, like when we think of physiologic limiters, yes, some people are going to be more biased to one than the other independent of the activity that they're doing. Like if you're a, a 400 pound strongman competitor, it's a pretty extreme physiology on the flip side. If you're a ultra marathon runner, it's a pretty extreme set of physiologic traits that in and of itself is going to kind of influence what your limiter is on most activities. But for most people, there's also going to be a very significant event bias. So this is where I would think about what do you actually care on performing in? Because we want to know your limiter on that activity. So let's say you're someone that needs to do like a three mile run for their, you know, fitness test. Well, we'd want to know what is your limiter when you're doing a three mile run? One way to think about this for running specifically would be it's kind of like strength training. You have some athletes where no matter what duration they're working at, they kind of always run the same pace. So you're like, oh, run a mile. They do a six minute mile. Then you're like, great, let's do a 400 meter time trial. And they run a 130, like a 129. And you're like, it's basically your mile pace. Let's do a 200 meter. And it's like 43 seconds. And you're like, starting to see a pattern here. <laughs> Could even go up to 5K and you're like, you know, basically like a 19 minute 5k so kind of that fixed gear athlete two speeds on the flip side you have people where you look at their mile or two mile pace and you're like damn if we project this out they're gonna have like an insane 5k time but they go to run a 5k and they're so slow compared to what their mile or two mile would predict so we're you know already kind of seeing two avatars that person who's kind of the fixed gear athlete no matter what distance they're running they're essentially going to run the same pace would generally be limited by their muscles ability to utilize oxygen. It's the same thing when you have someone in their lifting and you're like, what's your three rep max? 295. What's your run one rep max? 300. You're like, that doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. On the flip side, that athlete who has very sharp drop-offs as they increase the duration of work tends to be a little bit more uh, cardiovascular limited. So this would be the person where you're like, what's your one rep max back squat? 400. I see your three at max is probably like 375. And they're like, no, it's like 305. (laughs) What is going on? But they just, you know, fall off a cliff after doing any meaningful amount of work. Then in the middle is the respiratory limited athlete. This is one that's a little bit harder to kind of like put these general heuristics to. But I could say in most cases, when we're dealing with work capacity sports, if you're not dealing with someone who is ready exceptionally fit in that activity they're probably not going to be respiratory limited unless they have some kind of specific health condition that makes that more likely because what a respiratory limitation generally means is your cardiac output is so high that your red blood cells move so fast through the capillaries in your lungs that they can't pick up oxygen and we're talking about like someone who's pinning like 200 beats per minute heart rate for like a two-hour period like exceptionally high cardiac outputs. Generally, these people, like if you watch them uh, do like a max effort 2K or a 5K run, like their lips will turn blue after their fingers and toes might go numb. So it's not something you encounter a ton in the general population, but you do see it a lot when you're working with elite CrossFitters or 
you know, professional 5K runners up to the marathon. Is it, I'm, I'm trying to do like a four dummies translation of what you just said. And I want you to tell me <laughs> if it makes sense or not. So Obama's so anger, it, anger translator. Right. So is it, is it fair to say somebody who like, they might identify themselves as a fast twitch athlete or they're really good with intensity, but they're really limited with volume is likely to be transport limited. Mm-hmm. And then somebody who crushes high volumes, but can't ratchet up the intensity, that person is likely to be utilization limited. And if you don't fall into one of those two archetypes or that training is not moving the needle for you, you might be in the third category, which is, uh, respiratory, respiratory. Respiratory Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I think a lot of times when people are talking about I'm fast, switch, I'm slow twitch, they're using that as a fill-in for what their physiological limitation is without knowing that what they're talking about probably has nothing to do with their muscle fiber composition. Interesting. Because most people actually tend to have pretty like standard muscle fiber distributions. Uh, even if you've ever gotten a, like if you have yourself have gotten a muscle biopsy done. Yeah. Just, you know, on a Tuesday. Well, you would never get it done on a Tuesday, too. That's definitely <laughs> a Saturday afternoon activity, so you have Sunday to rest. Um, but what you find, like I've worked with a lot of athletes that have gotten muscle biopsies done, there tends to be really no meaningful correlation with what they think their fiber type is. And even in some of the studies looking at like elite world-class weightlifters where they get muscle biopsies, they often have no more fast-twitch muscle fiber uh, percentage than like an average person in the population so it's kind of like an interesting thing where it's talked about like that is such a strong deciding factor in performance but it just doesn't really seem to be well it's interesting, interesting. too because and again like you hear coaches oftentimes oh the, these are my type two athletes these are my type one it's like how many of those athletes have you done a muscle biopsy on zero well then okay you're just making that up which for people that don't know muscle biopsy is when they cut into your muscle tissue so yeah. again that's not something you would just do on a tuesday yeah, um, take a little tube and they suck a chunk out of your uh, muscle exactly out. suck a chunk of your muscle out and figure out your fiber type um so i i think i think we've done a pretty good job explaining these things and we've sort of gotten into some of the well, maybe we haven't really, maybe we should like, are there, are there field tests you could run on yourself to figure out within some margin of error, which of these kind of three broad archetypes you fall into? Yeah, definitely. So one like easy uh, field test would be like a speed preservation test. Caveat mm-hmm. is um, generally you need like a few different uh, time trial paces for someone. So if you were running or rowing, what is one that a lot of people have the right data on already is like a 500 meter, uh, 1K, 2K, 5K. You could essentially graph out a curve where you look at your uh, average pace across these distances. And I could actually send you something uh, later on. So if you want to put it in the show notes, but essentially there's, uh, depending on the test you use, anywhere between like five and 10 theoretical curves that you could compare your own curve to. And those different theoretical curves kind of map on to different physiological emitters. So if you see that from like a uh, 
my 5k pace compared to my 2k pace this is the percentage of speed that i preserve from uh i think i said 5k i meant 500 meter 500 to 2k or like 1k to 2k um you could find that out for yourself and then compare it to those curves and that would roughly tell you what your limiter is the caveat is if you're not collecting physiologic data you don't always know why that's your limiter so it does leave you a little bit in the dark as to uh, how to practically improve that in some cases, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, cheap and relatively easy to do. How, and I'm asking like intentionally simplified questions here, but assuming you're able to figure out which of those limiters you are, which limitation you have, how would you train each of those three things. So if, if I'm what we'll start with delivery, if I'm delivery limited for my particular activity, say I'm training for a two mile run because that's the ACFT because most of our listeners are army folks mm -hmm. and, and I have a delivery limitation for that event. What does my training look like as I move away from, I, I say to myself, Hey, that mops and most podcasts, those, those guys are pretty damn smart. I'm convinced that that old energy system model is bullshit. I want to do this new stuff. This Evan guy seems to know what he's talking about. I have determined that I am delivery limited. I have to do a two mile in six months. What should that person do? Yes, I'll start with the things that most people are probably already doing, kind of like the necessary but not sufficient parts, because <laughs> let's just get that out of the way. So when people talk about like zone two training, like long, slow distance training, all wonderful things for the delivery limited athlete, the caveat is that that in and of itself is never really going to be enough to move the needle on their performance unless they're a beginner. So the way that I tend to think about this is like, let's say you want to get someone's one rep max squat up. You could do leg extensions, leg curls, you know, posterior chain exercises, and you could squat heavy. I can't think of any strength coach who's going to say like, I'm just going to have my athletes do leg extensions and leg curls. And we're just never going to squat heavy again and just hope that their back squat goes up. No one's going to do that. It's always some combination but when people are trying to improve their endurance, they often do just that. And they're like, I'm just going to do a lot of slow, high volume endurance training and hope that I get better at a three mile run or a two mile run. It's almost never going to work. And that's because that long, slow distance training is the equivalent of just doing like extensions and leg curls. So when we're talking about what the heavy back squatting would be, that's something that we would call like a gradual desaturation training. So one of the things that we always need to think about for this delivery limited athlete is that they're limited by their cardiovascular system's ability to transport oxygen to the working muscles. So what we're trying to do with these athletes is avoid a situation where they just totally deplete the oxygen supplies in their muscles and they're just left kind of struggling in this semi-hypoxic state. So when we do a lot of traditional interval training where let's say you like you go out at a pretty fast pace and you're trying to hold that same pace across the interval, what typically happens in these athletes is they deoxygenate their muscles very quickly, and then they essentially hang on for dear life the remainder of the interval with a very low oxygen content in their muscles. That's not a bad training stimulus, but that's not really what's going to improve this athlete's performance. What we would be better off doing is gradually increasing the pace across an interval. So if you're, if you're familiar with like a tempo run that an endurance athlete would do, it's like condensing a tempo run into like a two to five minute period. So an easy example would be, let's say you have a seven-minute uh, 2K row. So it's a 145, 500-meter split. Well, you could just do 500-meter row repeats at a 145 pace. 
Or imagine you do 100 meters at a 155, 150, 145, 140, 135. The average pace on that is still 145 per 500 meter. But what you've done is you've gradually taken your pace from a relatively easy pace to a pretty hard pace over a roughly two minute period. That's essentially what we want to do for these delivery limited athletes, because as they deoxygenate the muscle more and more and more, there's going to be a response where they have to vasodilate the muscle in response to that. And the more you have to vasodilate a muscle, the harder your heart's going to have to pump to keep your blood pressure stable. And that's going to be training your cardiac output to increase over time. So that would be like kind of the bread and butter for delivery limited athletes, thinking of different ways of creating gradual ramping interval training structures. And you could be as creative as you possibly want with this. Um, so that's kind of like the big bang for your buck there. So let me, because uh, this is something, I mean, and we don't necessarily need to go down the rabbit hole of like, the technology and things that you would use to measure this with near infrared spectroscopy and all of that. But like translating this to athletes in the past, as, as I have done this and, and blow holes in this, if you'd like, but your delivery limited athletes, you can kind of think of these as like your muscle bound kind of stronger, more effectively carrying more tension around guys, gals that lift. When I think about this from, wanting to translate that to an aerobic activity or an endurance activity, like a two mile run, you have to almost the, the, the tendency for the body in that case, like you're saying is to make it more challenging for oxygen to get to the muscle to then be utilized to perform the task. And so by tweaking the interval structure and gradually increasing the pace, you're sort of keeping your RPMs below the red line the whole time versus just ramping it up right at the beginning, pedal to the metal, boom, but everything shuts down because that's, that's their limiter. They're, they're limited in delivering the gasoline to the engine effect. Is that, is that more or less correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's more or less correct. And it's even that, uh, it's that when you change the distribution of work in an interval you're biasing one system more than the other so let's take the opposite scenario where you just go out really hot and you kind of progressively fall off your pace and slow down that's going to be very disadvantageous for the delivery limited athlete but that might actually be great for a respiratory limited athlete because for a respiratory limited athlete they want to spend as much time as possible close to a peak vo2 so like near their maximal oxygen consumption well, if they're just, you know, rowing at a 145, 500 meters split, that same example, it's going to be one that lasts like 10 to 20 seconds. It's getting pretty challenging for them. That's when they're reaching pretty high levels of oxygen consumption. So you do a two minute interval, they get maybe 20 to 30 seconds of really effective work. It's not really a good use of their time because in order to accumulate a lot of effective volume, you're going to have to do a ton of intervals and that just becomes excessively fatiguing. So what they could do is it's called a hard start interval. They would come out really hot and essentially reach a peak oxygen consumption very quickly and then progressively fall off their pace in a controlled way. Not just like, I'm going to go out sprinting and just (laughs) die for two minutes. No, it would be a intentional coming out hot and falling off the pace. And by progressively dropping off the pace, they're able to extend out the duration that they could work at a high percentage of their peak oxygen consumption so now they could do a two minute interval it's basically two minutes of stimulation for their limiter 
So it's another way that you could just kind of manipulate the training structure to bias a certain limitation. And this tends to work really well when you're in environments where you can't really fully individualize people's training. Like you could conceivably have everyone doing 500 meter repeats that day and just tweak the intra-interval pacing. So everyone's getting something that's going to target their limiter. Um, and it's just because of how they're distributing the work. You could effectively really do this with any form of conditioning or energy system training you're going for a 20 minute run well you're gonna have some athletes gradually increase pace across the 20 minutes you're gonna have other people come out hot and gradually decrease their speed you could have some people alternating like very high intensity and very low intensity everyone's taking the same amount of time to do these workouts but they're getting a lot of touches of individualization so it's more impactful for them because i crave a framework I can put on a piece of paper, like a chart of each of these things. The gap we have left is utilization limited athletes. But wait, before you go to utilization, I just want to touch on the respiratory thing because the challenge there and the reason why you're trying to keep the athlete at that peak oxygen consumption is because you're training the respiratory system to handle that workload. I mean, one of the things that just staying on the respiratory athlete a second longer one of the things that was interesting to me as a strength and conditioning coach and something I was never really taught growing up in that world was that the diaphragm itself, the long, like all of that structure is a muscle that you can effectively train. And there's devices like people can look up spiro tigers and things like that, where you can train the actual, the musculature, but the interval structure that you talked about, the way that you can structure that training kind of mimics the same thing. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we're trying to get at there from, a, I guess, a gasoline analogy is just the ability for your respiratory system to process more oxygen and then move more oxygen into the body. Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah. And to improve the fatigue resistance of the diaphragm, because mm -hmm. to your point, most people don't realize your diaphragm uses upwards of 30% of your total body's oxygen consumption during like really high intensity endurance pieces. So if you could make your diaphragm stronger, more importantly, more fatigue resistance to where that doesn't become a limiting factor for your performance, think of how much mileage you get for that. And that becomes even more important in like CrossFit populations or military, where oftentimes you're having to work with an external load on you and your mm -hmm. diaphragms both acting as the primary muscle for respiration and also as a major spinal stabilizer. So it's like a double hit to your diaphragm. That's going to make it harder for you to breathe. Aside from the fact that both military and CrossFit, though in different ways, often have uh, postural patterns that bias them towards respiratory limitations, mm -hmm. whether it's like the kyphotic stuck in like a bent over position or like a hyperextension pattern, both of those are going to either create um, in the like kyphotic example, a inspiratory limitation and the person who's like stuck in the chest up posture leaning back expiratory limitation so there's some like positional things that tie into the respiratory limitation as well mm -hmm. okay so we've done we've talked about delivery we've talked about respiration now to alex's point that if i am that third type of athlete mm -hmm. that utilization limited athlete and i have to you know perform on my two mile run in six months what are some things i can do there yes yeah, so let's say there are two different ways that people could be utilization limited. 
So the way that I would think about it is, um, is it that they cannot utilize or that they will not utilize? So the person that cannot utilize, oftentimes there's like a specific uh, issue with that tissue. So for example, a lot of times if you see someone got like a ACL surgery eight months ago or 10 months ago, and oftentimes the muscles around that knee are still like cold to the touch, um, they don't seem to get very good blood flow that could be a cause of utilization limitation. And that could be due to like low mitochondrial density, low blood flow through that tissue. So those are things, obviously, assuming the tissue is healthy again, that that tissue um, has regained strength, then starting to do the types of protocols that will improve things like mitochondrial density. So like a repeat sprint protocol, generally getting people stronger will improve their utilizations. These are all things that they could be thinking about. Mm -hmm. The other type of utilization limitation is almost a utilization limitation by default where someone's cardiovascular and respiratory systems are so developed that by default, they are going to be utilization limited. That's someone I tend to be a little bit less worried about to the extent that it's not a problem for their sport. But if they are lacking like good top speed or a kick, that's where things like one, improving their coordination recruitment. So if they're not doing any form of heavy strength training, they're not doing anything that teaches them to be explosive, that could be worth looking into. So for that utilization limited athlete, it's always figuring out like, is it like a real performance characteristic that's limiting them? Or is it a actual tissue problem? Uh, oftentimes you could even be utilization limited. Uh, if you've ever encountered someone where they tend to hyperventilate a lot, even when they're not working very hard, that could actually cause utilization limitation as well. Because if they're breathing off too much CO2, they're actually changing their blood chemistry in a way that makes it more difficult for oxygen to dissociate from hemoglobin. So they're essentially making their hemoglobin more sticky where the oxygen doesn't come off, and that would also make them utilization limited. So again, there's always like a combination of people's posture, how they move, how they coordinate movement, how they breathe, uh, and mm -hmm. then more of like traditional physiologic characteristics. So it's always trying to like pinpoint that a little bit and use the information that you already know about that athlete to try and figure it out. So for example, with like a respiratory limited athlete, like, okay, this person seems to be respiratory limited. Uh, you know, I know they always tend to have like shoulder and neck injuries. You look at their posture and they're kind of overextended. You're like, oh, you know, even though it is a respiratory limitation, maybe improving their posture actually fixes that issue to some degree. And it's not just hammering them with things like hard start intervals. So that's where from like a coach's perspective, you could be a little bit creative and kind of play detective and say like, what other issues do I know this athlete tends to have? Mm -hmm. Where else do they tend to be limited? and do all these things kind of like click into each other where we could identify one or two things that we could improve that tend to make them better at a lot of different things. And I think it's important to mention, because again, just kind of knowing the population of people that listen to this, like you will always have, depending on the activity, you will always have a limiter. There will always be something keeping you from going to whatever that next level is. So because I think when I first started being exposed to this model, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm, you know, for example, utilization limited, the obvious thought process following that is like, well, how can I get rid of that limitation? Well, mm -hmm. once you do that, there's other limitations. And, and I think you just kind of touched on that briefly. 
with you could be utilization limited in this example because your respiratory limitation and your delivery limitations have you've done a good job at you know i guess quote unquote solving for that it just creates an yeah. additional limitation so it's always a dance that you're doing both with the athlete's individual physiology but then also the event that you're trying to prepare them for is that accurate yeah. No, yeah. And that's a great point. And that's where we don't want to fall into the fallacy. I remember years ago when the idea of like strength balance was a big thing. It's mm -hmm. like your deadlift should be like 125% of your back squat and somehow that will make you stronger. And I was like, I know a really easy way to make my deadlift because my deadlift was disproportionately high compared to my back squat. And I'm like, I know a really easy way to strengthen my or fix my strength balance. I'll just stop deadlifting and then it will suddenly be up to 25% and then get weak <laughs> in theory that should make me stronger at everything. Like intuitively you're like, that doesn't actually make any sense. <laughs> so in the same vein, you're like, yeah, I know a way to make you not delivery limited. We just get you way worse at everything else. And then you'll be limited by those instead. So the idea isn't to be limited. It's just to think about what is your limitation right now, knowing that when you fix that, you're going to be limited by something else. And that's kind right. of where it like naturally curtails into periodization of like, how do you know that you should start training something else? Because the thing that you're training isn't the limiting factor anymore. So then you can just kind of put it on maintenance mode. And, you know, it's always just a process of like, what are you limited by now? What are you limited by in six oh, and you know you just kind of keep going through the hands so i want to go back to something drew mentioned at the end of that though because i think it has a lot of relevance to tactical specifically and i think it'll you'll Thank probably you. have insight on this because of the crossfit stuff you've worked on but you've, you've mentioned a couple of times that your limiter is like activity or movement specific mm -hmm. meaning that like there's, there's like a neuromuscular component of this, right? Mm -hmm. Like certain muscles can be more prepared to utilize oxygen yeah. than other muscles because you've trained movements that utilize those muscles mm -hmm. in a world where you don't know what movements your quote unquote competition is mm -hmm. going to demand, whether that's CrossFit and it's because you don't know what the, the competition is going to look like or tactical because it's mm -hmm. like some sort of combat type of scenario yeah. where you don't know what you're going to have to do. It, it sounds like part of the problem here is we can't universally say somebody has that specific limiter. We can only say they have mm -hmm. that limiter for certain activities where we've assessed mm -hmm. them. Is there any like universal application of finding out what your limiter is, or is it pretty specific to what you're training? Yeah. So again, like a given person will always have their predisposition. So once okay. you get trained enough, people tend to start to fall into one of those three buckets more strongly and they really need to fight to not get stuck there. So you do tend to see people go that way over time. But I think the second part that I would add is even though we could identify someone's limiter, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't train everything else because you don't fail in an event when your limiter gives out. You fail when you exhaust all of your compensation strategies. So you still want to strengthen those compensation strategies because by definition, pushing yourself maximally means you are going to overload your limiter and you need to rely on everything else. It kind of reminds me of when you see someone like working up to like a one rep max back squad and you see someone get like dumped over forward and basically do like a crazy good morning. I remember talking to a lot of lifting coaches years ago and they're like, yeah, that's a sign that someone's low back is weak because they're getting like dumped forward. And if you think about that logically, you're like, no that's a sign that their lower back is actually stronger than everything else. 
because the fact that they just good morning to 450 pounds probably tells us that their lower back is really strong and everything else is kind of weak. <laughs> so it's they've defaulted to that movement strategy because that's that's their strength. So for that person, it's like, yeah, you probably need to get their quads stronger, get everything else stronger. But like also definitely make sure their lower back is really strong. Because if it's a like gun to your head, squat as much as you possibly can, and you know that person's going to dump forward, don't you want to make sure that their lower back is going to be able to take whatever load is on them? So it's kind of similar with energy systems of like, yes, we know their limiter, get that stronger, but we also know that that's never going to be sufficient. So make sure that their like plan B and plan C are also really well developed. That's the classic survivorship bias one, which mm -hmm. like everybody's favorite tactical explanation of a fallacy right is the like the planes coming back and like they looked at where the holes were on those planes mm -hmm. and figured that's where they need to put the armor no it's not where you need to bolster them that's the part that could take it mm -hmm. the planes that didn't come back had holes in other places and that's where you need to fix it yeah well and it feels like too that you know the conversation started about energy systems and we talked about the traditional model and then we talked about this more contemporary model and then very quickly started talking about limiters and training ideas and things like that but i think it's there's kind of an important lesson there which is that the contemporary model of of energy system development by virtue of the fact that it it is physiologically correct then sort of demands this training strategy off of the back end, which is this limitation model. It's identifying where your limiters are and then figuring out the strategies that you need to plug into your training to, like you mentioned, go after that lowest hanging fruit. And then inevitably, once that fruit is gone, there's going to be another fruit that is now the lowest hanging. And you're kind of always, you're always chasing that holy grail. I think people can get lost in the sauce and then just sort of like default back to, well, I'm just going to do a lactic power training because I can open up this textbook to page 603 and there's a nice pretty graph there. So for you, Evan, like what does energy system training mean? I mean, I think like I'm very philosophical. <laughs> so what is energy system development? Yeah. So for me, again, it's always just a means to an end. So unless I'm working with like a true endurance athlete, which is a little bit of a different use case and generally less often for me, I tend to work more with CrossFit or tactical populations. The point of energy system training for me is just to improve the integrated capacity of the pulmonary system to uptake oxygen, cardiovascular system to transport it, and muscular system to utilize it. As long as we're continually finding which of those is the right limiting factor, improving it, bringing the other ones up in tandem, that person is generally going to be better conditioned. Now, if we were to say this person is a elite half marathon runner, you know, we have to go beyond that because there's specifics of that exact event, the mechanics, the pacing, you name it. It's a very different story. But when the demands of someone's job or sport are by definition kind of unknowable, I think the best that we could do is improve the integrated capacity of all these systems to essentially raise their ceiling of performance and then fill in the gap with whatever movements they need to be competent in. So kind of mixing and matching all of the different combinations. Mm -hmm. And I think from like a very practical program design perspective, this becomes a lot simpler because I'm never thinking like, oh, we're going to do this aerobic base period for six months and then we're going to transition to speed endurance and that, 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 you name it. 
whole classic block periodization. It's always just about what are we focusing on right now? I'm not even thinking about what we're going to be doing in a month from now. Doesn't matter to me whatsoever. Just what are we doing right now? What's the logical step that we take next week? If it seems that the limiter has shifted, let's take what we're doing right now, kind of cut the volume down, say to 30% of what we're doing, put that on maintenance mode, pick some training protocols for the other limiter that we believe is now present that makes sense in the context of the training week run that until that's not a limiter and it's always just kind of swapping things in and out mm -hmm. without never ever needing to think about these long elaborate periodization schemes so i think ultimately training just becomes much simpler because even when i'm working with you know crossfit athletes that are going to the games i'm really almost never thinking more than say two or three weeks out unless they're specifically preparing for a competition like if an athlete asked me for a long-term periodization plan don't have it don't even think about it. <laughs> so yeah. it, it almost sounds lazy because I think people expect those things, but in a sense, it's actually much simpler to just focus on what you need to be doing right now. Mm -hmm. This kind of is a slight variation on the question Drew just asked, but given that a lot of the people who are listening to this are not going to do hyper-individualized training, they're either somebody who coaches larger groups or they're following a more generic program and things like that, you, you talk about you don't just focus on your primary limiter. You want to bring the others up at the same time. So that ends up looking like a program where we're doing a little bit of maximal effort sprinting, a little bit of like middle distance repeat interval kind of stuff, and a little bit of longer duration sustained work. And we're shifting the emphasis between those to target one thing or another at a different time, which mm -hmm. like in fairness to the old model, they would probably arrive at very something very similar mm -hmm. with their training when they're applying it to a large group as well. So yeah. in a, in a practical way, is there any like massive takeaway in terms of how people should be training or is it just a different understanding of what's going on in your body, but pretty similar training outcomes? Yes. I would say it would be a slightly different distribution because yeah, I mean, if someone is truly breaking up their training between all these things, it's like a 30, 30, 30 split which really I think tends to not generally be the case, you'll find that there's very extreme biases to how people in that group adapt. So let's say it's really more of like a 60-20-20 split. The person who's in that group where 60% of the volume is biased towards their limiters probably to get good much faster. The other people not so much. So I think it's less about the specifics of what someone's doing in the distribution so I would tend to make roughly like 70% of training bias towards the limiter. Let's say roughly 20, kind of like that secondary limiting system. Then most people, kind of that third system, it's usually trained enough that it doesn't need to be explicitly focused on. So let's say 10% to negligible because it will get stressed in other forms of training. So it's more of like an extreme bias of how things are being done. But I think to your point in the group, it's often easier than people think to make these modifications. Like I've worked in group and team environments where, you know, even just from like a staff standpoint, there's just not enough people to actually go person by person and address training. So oftentimes when they write the training for that day, or I've worked with groups and we've written training for that day, we would at some point earlier in like the season or the year, put people through testing and kind of give, give them a, you're like a type one, type two or type three. And on this day, you know, we have two or three different workouts, depending on your group, 
pick which one you're doing with some very minor pace adjustments based on like what speeds actually make sense for that person. So even when they come in on that day, it's like already relatively individualized. And then, you know, within like two minutes, you could get each person kind of up to speed with some of the minor nuances. So the coaching time doesn't need to be spent so much on the like big picture stuff. It could be more on like the little minutia that is easy to convey and it's like a last minute piece of feedback. So I understand how to do that with an example of like 400s, right? Mm-hmm. Cause I can, I know which category of limiter somebody might fall into. I can tell them whether they're doing hard start or go mm-hmm. gradually ramping or straight intervals. If we're doing like longer duration or much shorter duration, like maximal effort stuff, like whether it's like weightlifting yeah. or like short duration sprinting or much longer duration stuff, what would those modifications look mm-hmm. like? Yeah, it's a great question. So let's say we're doing something very long duration. I'd say for the respiratory limited athlete, that's the one where you could add the most uh, fun things into a long duration work piece. So you could start to add things like surges, things that make it fun for the delivery limited athlete. That's where I would generally break up anything that's really, truly long duration. So let's say you wanted them to run for two hours. I might have them stop every five to 10 minutes, shake it out for a minute or two, let them reoxygenate the tissue sufficiently. Because what you tend to find with those athletes is essentially independent of the pace that they're doing. They tend to deoxygenate the tissues at some point to where it's no longer productive. So even with those delivery limited athletes, if I'm having them do like a 60 minute echo bike at a low intensity, I still typically have them stop every few minutes, even though they're like, this is so easy. I have an 110 beat per minute heart rate. It's like, don't care, still stop anyway. Where the respiratory limited athletes, you tend to add more pickups and things like that. The utilization limited athlete, that's a harder one because in most cases it would be counterproductive for that person to be going out doing like a two hour run or 60 minute echo bike since generally that is the opposite of the adaptation. They're already good there. Yeah. So that's where like if they have to do it, you know, just whatever we could do to lower the cost of it. Um, But if they don't have to do it, then I just wouldn't make them do it in the first place and they could use that time to lift weights or do something that the other groups might not have to spend time on well i mean it's like to me utilization and i know that this isn't necessarily correct but utilization limited kind of equates to being a beginner in some sense for that particular activity so like to your point if if my platoon is going out on a 10 mile run for some reason you wouldn't take a newbie who's never run before out for 10 hours or 10 hours for 10 miles. Like you would logically kind of build up to that volume. And it's the same sort of thing for the utilization limited athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Or it could even be someone who's just trained with extremely high volume for a long period of time and just kind Mm -hmm. of lacks intensity. Mm -hmm. I've worked with some even like pretty elite endurance athletes where like, let's say um, actually have one athlete in mind. They were a very competitive ultra marathon runner. And they wanted to start competing in marathons. So when I started working with them, they had just done their first marathon. And I looked at their time and I was like, your marathon pace is roughly your 100 mile pace (laughs) is a big problem. And I think they were running like 150 miles a week pretty consistently. So you're like, there's just not a lot that we could do when you're running 100 plus miles a week regularly to improve your maximal rate of utilization. So for that person, they were extremely trained, 
but they were working with such high volume at the expense of intensity that you just I mean even for them you can't just like suddenly cut their volume down to 50 miles a week that ends up often being a problem but over time you could slowly pull their volume down while layering an intensity knowing that the event that they're going to be competing in is literally 20 to 25 percent of the duration that they're used to but you do see that with some crossfit athletes as well sometimes even at the higher level where they've just trained with such high volumes for such long periods of time that they effectively lack any real top speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've, I think we've already blown past the hour mark here and I, I do want to bring this to a close, but this isn't necessarily a question, just a plug. This is like to coaches out there working with tactical populations. What, what Evan has basically just described is what I'm, I know some units have like played with it a little bit, but it's the model of tactical, like, training organization that i've wanted to see for a while a conventional army which is where all my experience is tends to do ability group based training where you're all doing the same training just at different difficulties so like everybody's going to run long slow distance today but fast people are going to go together and medium people are going to go together and slow people are going to go together whatever but what you're kind of describing which is what i want to see is groups based on training needs where people might be doing entirely different things. So your like your utilization limited athletes might not need to do as many days of high volume work mm-hmm. as your delivery limited athletes do. They might do an entirely different training session that day, more focused on the things that limit them. Mm-hmm. And like two to three days a week might overlap because everybody yeah. has like similar across the board needs but we shift emphasis, which means a couple of days a week, people are doing entirely different training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to your point, it doesn't need to be completely different because given that everyone's job is probably similar, like there's definitely overlapping needs, but yeah, I think even like two days of individualized work, according to someone's specific group, that's probably enough to move the needle in most cases. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's put a bow on this. I think, the primary the primary change that we want to see in the discussion around energy system training is that it's less about these lines and graphs and time and duration and all that and more about like oxygen really drives all of it and so if we accept that to be true and the literature would back that up the next logical step is saying okay given that oxygen drives all of it what is keeping you as the athlete from from getting the oxygen that you need to do the thing. And that's where the conversation around limiters comes up because inevitably if, if, and I'll steal Evan's analogy of the chocolate factory, it's like, which, which part of this process of creating chocolate bars is keeping you from creating more chocolate bars? Is it the mixing of ingredients, putting the wrapper on, et cetera? I know I just butchered that because I've heard you say it, you know, a, a million times, but that then drives the discussion around training. So hopefully in a very circuit circuit, circuitous and lengthy and drawn out way. Is that the right way to say that word? Yeah. Circuitous. You got yeah. It. Okay. Great. Harvard word. Hopefully in a very circuitous way, we have arrived at a point that provides some relevance as to why we keep having this conversation around an updated model of energy system training, why it's important for the industry at large to potentially look at updating some of their models around energy system training, because it can drive a more contemporary approach to training athletes and hopefully move people away from this idea of like 
do it this way based on these intervals and these time domains, because that's what we decided 70 odd years ago. And we refuse to change any of it. Have we, are there any stones we have left unturned gentlemen? I think that was a nice synopsis. Beautiful. It was, it was circuitous. It was circuitous. I'm going to bug Evan after we end the recording, but I'm going to, I'm going to try and turn this into like a chart people can use, but we'll talk about that later. Awesome. Evan, always a pleasure. You too, guys. Thank you. Hey, Alex, let's cover our ass real quick. Oh, great idea, Drew. All right, guys. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Before you go, please rate and review the pod on the listening platform of your choice. You can also visit us on our website at www.mopsinmos.com. That's mops, the letter in, mos.com. You can check out the library of podcast episodes, our latest blog entries, any helpful resources, and also sign up for our newsletter. Drew nailed it. Just to underline a couple of things, the podcast entries have in-depth show notes on the website. So if you missed anything or you want to read any of the research we talk about, it is all there. You can, at the bottom of the website, sign up with your email and receive future updates from us. The blog posts go a little bit more in-depth in kind of written form on a couple of topics we get questions about all the time. But most importantly, I just want to ask all you guys, our best way the word gets out is absolutely word of mouth. So tell your friends, tell the people you work with, anybody you think would find it useful. Thanks for spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to shoot us an email at either Drew or Alex at mopsandmos.com. Or there's a contact form on the website. Thank you.